You're listening to the Detroit is Different Podcast Network. Welcome to the Riverwise Podcast. I'm your host today, Kari Frazier, and I'm here with Dr. Martin Reinhardt. And we're talking about indigenous foods and uh, really so much of what goes on with indigenous foods. When we think of so many of the rich tribes and cultures that connect in throughout this great state of Michigan with the Great Lakes. So the fresh water definitely adds some flavor to what we can do. How are you doing today, Dr. Martin? Yeah, you know, the uh, idea of indigenous foods, right? I mean, people have to think about, well, what is it that makes it indigenous? And that's something that we really had to think about is the identity of food is tied with the identity of people and that interrelationship between the two. And so it's really important that uh, people think about, you know, uh, what is it that makes indigenous indigenous? You know, we, okay. think of it, we think it oftentimes is, uh, you know, related to the biology of a person or, you know, the biology of place. But we also have cultural elements and legal and political elements, elements in there. All right. So when we think about the, the tribes in and around Michigan, um, can you introduce some of the tribes and the differences and the nuances of uh, how they even look at food? Yeah. So, you know, uh, Helen Hornbeck Tanner and her Atlas of Great Lakes Indian History, uh, she does a really good job about talking about the tribes of the Great Lakes. And she really classifies them as three different kinds of uh, cultural groups. Uh, one are the uh, the permanent residents, the tribes that have been here for a long, long time. This is their homeland, mm-hmm. and this is you know home of the capital H. Uh, the, she said, "There's the others, you know, the ones who are temporary allies who moved here and then moved on, and then there are those that uh, maybe you know the uh, colonists or the ones that were pushed here uh, through colonization, the mm-hmm. ones who have been uh, living here for you know." because they were uh, uh, moved west when the United States was growing, displaced. That's right. Disenfranchised Mm -hmm. from their traditional homelands. And, you know, they may have been uh, here and then moved further on. So the Anishinaabe, uh, plural Anishinaabe, is the uh, tribes here in Michigan today. All of them are Anishinaabe tribes. And so we have uh, among the Anishinaabe tribes are Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi, and they make up the uh, Anishinaabe Three Fires Confederacy. So all 12 federally recognized tribes in Michigan and the state recognized tribes, all of them are Anishinaabe. Okay. All right. So when it comes to food, are there some differences between the three tribes? And then if so, what are those differences? Yeah. So, I mean, if you uh, go to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, you know, we don't have a long growing season up there. And mm-hmm. so a lot of the fish traditionally, or a lot of the food rather, uh, over there traditionally was fish and game. Uh, but there was some, you know, uh, some gardening. In fact, in Marquette, Michigan, where we live, is one of the biggest garden areas historically in this region. Mm-hmm. And so there were things growing up here, you know, corn, beans, squash, uh, the three sisters, and the fourth sister, sunflower, and other things. You know, so there there was definitely gardening in the area. There's also foraging. Uh, you know, the uh, there's so many plants out there from spring until fall that uh, supplemented our diet. And we're in the summertime, we're actually a major part of the diet, a lot more greenery. If, you know, you go further south, 
you know, Ottawa tribes and uh, Potawatomi tribes down there, they had bigger uh, gardens, longer seasons. And so they were doing probably more gardening than we were doing up here. And so, you know, of course, the trade routes, you know, between uh, tribal communities, you know, we would bring our moose meat and fish down south and then they would bring their uh, gourds and, you know, the pumpkins, corn all up here. Okay. All right. So this, um, this marketplace and trade, um, how, how established and how fluent, uh, was this, I guess I would say traditionally when we think about, uh, this being a space that, uh, belonged to the people, the tribes of the people and not something that was colonized. Yeah. You know, that's, uh, that, really made us think we were back at our food taster on campus back in 2010. You know, we were getting ready to feed the community, what we have been calling native foods all along. And it really kind of sparked a discussion one day is would our ancestors recognize the food that we're serving as native food today as foods that they were familiar with. And so one question led to another and then it became a real good conversation around the center for native American studies and then I, at some point, I re- reversed that question. I said, would we be able to eat today like our ancestors ate in a pre-colonial context? And that uh, gave rise to the de- Decolonizing Diet Project. And it became a year-long study where we dedicated ourselves to eating indigenous foods at from 25 to 100% of our daily diet uh, just to see what would happen. And, you know, we, uh, we saw some really good results from that. We've seen... Um, uh, health increase, you know, on a biological level, on a cultural level, people learn things that they had never learned before. Uh, we revitalized traditions and, and traditional food knowledge in this area. On a legal and political level, we engaged in exercising our treaty rights and we challenged the, uh, you know, the institutions uh, to really think about where they stand on you know, our indigenous food relations. So uh, let, let's talk a little bit about that project. That sounds very interesting. Uh, how many people participated in that? Uh, how did you all set up uh, moving forward with that? How, how did you plan to execute? That's a uh, big to do. Yeah, well, we we hoped we'd have tons of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars to do it. But, <laughs> you know, it just wasn't the case, man. We had uh, we ended up doing it with about seventeen thousand mm. dollars, which was a really slim budget for a year long intense project like that. But a lot of volunteerism, and uh, you know, folks had to rely on their own resources. And we had twenty five uh, research participants uh, joined us. I, I myself was one of them. My wife and I was at a hundred percent. My wife was at twenty five percent. And so I felt like if I'm going to you know, help have recruit others to join me on this adventure, I better jump full, fully into the pool there. And so I did. I, I said, I'm going 100 percent for a year and see what happens. And okay. uh, so, yeah, that's what we did. We before we all set out, uh, you know, I went on a fast, a four day fast just to kind of cleanse my body and my mind and spirit. And then I got a, a physical uh, before everybody got physicals before quarterly checkups during the year and then a, a annual physical afterwards, just so we could uh, really keep track of some medical data. And then we also asked them to keep journals, daily journals about what they were eating and drinking and how they were feeling, how it was going. Yeah. So they posted photos and, uh, you know, little snippets, uh, sometimes videos. It was a really cool year. We learned a lot and, you know, uh, I had to smuggle, uh, you know, indigenous popcorn into the theater. 
because you know you can't go into the theater and eat indigenous popcorn. Uh-huh. You can't go to the local restaurant and order the indigenous food plate. You know, so I was smuggling food into places that probably didn't want me to bring my food in. But what do you do? You know, mm-hmm. what uh, what what differences did you learn? Just, uh, you know, how did you feel while doing this? Uh, what, what did you learn about yourself? Just in emotions? Well, it was a, it's a point of pride, you know, when you're eating the foods that your ancestors ate. You know, you really identify deeply, you know, going back thousands and thousands of years. And. You know, the reason that they ate that way is because it's from here. And so that's one of the things that I realized over the last few years. uh, But it really started with the Decolonizing Diet Project is that, you know, the healthiest way you can eat is local and indigenous anywhere on the planet. And so I think that's what we really have to follow that uh, in what we do and really think, you know, I mean, it's cool to be able to, you know, have fusion, food fusion. Uh, but if we're really going to pay respect uh, to our mother earth and to really live sustainably, we really want to think about eating what is from the place where we live and what is meant to grow here and not things that we have to, you know, tear up the earth and uh, bring in, you know, bulldozers and, and seeds from 2000 miles away. And you know what I'm saying? It's like, there's, there's a reason why food was growing here and the animals were living here and we learned how to live with them and uh, learn from them. So I think that's what one of the main things we learned. Okay. And, and throughout the project, what, what foods were you eating? Uh, how, how was your diet? Uh, how diverse was it? Was it like the same thing over and over and over again? What, what, what was that like? Well, you know, the, uh, the American food spectrum is very wide, but it's not real deep. If you think about it, I mean, you know, you go and go, go to any town and you're going to see the same restaurants buying the same food from the same uh, distributors. And so the, the food spectrum is real wide, uh, but it's not real deep. The food spectrum for our project was not very wide. In fact, it was very slim, but it was deep, you know, and, it, and I'm talking, we really explored the depths of all of these limited products. So, you know, things like maple products, we were using maple syrup, maple sugar, uh, you know, uh, using them as sweet and sour or just sweet. You know, we were like experimenting so much during that year. Uh, we really figured out what goes well together and what doesn't. And, you know, unlocking tastes that maybe hadn't been, you know, uh, tasted in years in this area, maybe over 100 years or so. And so uh, maple products, uh, bison, venison, uh, indigenous fish like walleye and whitefish. You know, I I like the uh, uh, whitefish uh, with the pecans and the maple on it uh, over wild rice. That is so good and very healthy for you. I like the bison venison meatballs with crab uh, crab apple sauce. You know, that's uh, there's only one apple from the indigenous uh, indigenous apple from the Great Lakes region. That's the American sweet crab apple. So we took that and we made crab apple sauce. And my gosh, is that some good stuff? And we also made crab apple cider vinegar out of it. And we were able to use that for uh, salad dressings and stir fries. And yeah, man, it, we really, uh, you know, I, I'm not a chef by training, but I really got into the making some good food that year. And I I think that some of my recipes that are included in our cookbook are pretty good. We obviously didn't include the bad ones in there because we don't want people eating bad recipes. Mm-hmm. And, and that willingness to to be creative. Um, 
did everyone in the group, did they stick to it throughout the whole project? Well, you know, we had uh, 25 original DDPers, we call them, and we had two alternates. And we lost a few along the way. You know, they opted out. Uh, Some of them died starvation. We had to eat them. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But, you know, uh, you know, people, for whatever life reasons, they just couldn't, you know, stay the course. And so uh, they got out and we did have some opt in. A few of that opted in Mm -hmm. before the six month mark. Uh, We allowed people to opt in up to the six month mark because we at least wanted half a year of data. Mm -hmm. And so that's uh, the ones who opted in stayed the rest of the year and so we ended up with some uh, uh, some data that we were able to crunch at the end of the year, and we saw statistically significant decreases in weight. People lost weight, and they were at a healthy level of weight, uh, many of them after the year was over. And then we also saw a significant drop in uh, triglycerides and LDL, which are bad, bad uh, cholesterol. Uh, cholesterol. Yeah, mm-hmm. but we had a plateauing of HDL, which is good cholesterol. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I mean, you know, that was really good. Uh, we also saw a decrease in blood glucose levels and mm-hmm. in some cases uh, blood pressure because there's not a lot of salt in the foods. Mm-hmm. And so that's, uh, you know, that that's really good. Like right now, my blood pressure is kind of up because I've been, you know, off of the diet 100% anyway for a while. But I still eat a lot of the uh, foods. and. You know, it's a really, it, my body craves it. You know, when I'm not, when I haven't eaten DDP foods uh, much on a daily basis. I can feel my body wanting it. That's interesting that you speak to that. Um, so within that, um, and then connecting to that culture, connecting to the heritage, mm-hmm. I, I also have to ask this. Um, as you did that, you know, and spoke to this and, and you've presented this data, what intrigue and interest have you gained other than like, you know, people that we're connecting through this project yeah. and uh, your experience outside of us? You know, what have you gathered uh, from other people? What have you usually what do you usually run into when uh, when a person when you let them know about this whole unique project? Well, it's really cool because, you know, like I said, we started this back in 2010. And we implemented it in 2012. And ever since then, it's been a wave of food uh, sovereignty across the, the globe. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, pretty much every tribe in the United States, and I would say even in Canada, you know, they have now uh, at least a committee that's looking at food sovereignty as part of their official structures. My tribe, the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians, uh, they just created a food sovereignty committee. And so they're, you know, we're really seeing a tidal wave of food sovereignty movements, you know, for having departments, committees, uh, conferences, symposia. It has, it's, it's got a life of its own and it's, it's burning like a wildfire out there. And that's really good to see. You know, we were kind of at the beginning of that, uh, that wave. And to see it now, you know, now we have indigenous restaurants out there like Awamni and uh, Wape Paz Kitchen. And, you know, those are completely indigenous restaurants. Never seen that back in the day. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really cool to be able to actually go in a restaurant and sit down and, you know, all the foods indigenous. And so that uh, that's really neat. And then, uh, you know, there's a lot. Uh, there's more books coming out about it. You know, my friend uh, Devin Maihisua, you know, um, she had uh, Reclaiming Our Gardens and, uh, you know, American Indian Health and Diet Project. And I was featured in one of her books. 
uh, indigenous food sovereignty in the United States. And, you know, those are really important books. They're, they're, you know, it's about what's happening currently, and it's not a lot written about this yet. So it's good that we're now starting to see these texts come out, the, the cookbooks, you know, people are, they don't have to come up with original recipes, although it's still fun, you know, to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and I think more, and importantly, studies, you know, research projects like ours, uh, there's, there wasn't many of them back when we started it. And now we're starting to see people take up graduate uh, research projects on this and people really taking a hard look at it. Uh, we just got done, uh, Amber Morsa and I uh, just got done writing a, a book, a curriculum uh, called An Introduction to Tribal Health. And the Decolonizing Diet Project is featured in there in the food sovereignty section. And that's going to be used by medical school students. You know, so it's it's really starting to hit the mainstream, I think, through the uh, the restaurants and through the educational aspects of it. People realize that this is not just important. It's not just a novelty and, you know, something for Indian people, but it's something that has implications for world uh, changes, especially due to global, uh, global climate change. You know, we, we should not be shipping food across the globe. It's not healthy for our, our families, our world. You know, it's uh, it's causing a lot of stress on everything. So what are some of the next steps that you think that society should take so that uh, we can move more in that direction? Yeah, I think it's about access and cost. And those are the things that really drive it. Right. Because if people had access to it, they might say, well, it's worth it. You know, my health is worth me spending a little more money or spending a little more time. You know, if people had access to it, even if they couldn't afford it, maybe they could go out and harvest it if it was available locally. But it's a, really a matter of cost because we're surrounded by a capitalist society. And people, you know, they if that's how they get their food, you know, and the only way they get their food is by going to the marketplace. Well, then it needs to be in the marketplace, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we need indigenous food aisles or we need indigenous foods integrated throughout the marketplace where people can actually uh, see them and, you know, touch them, feel them, cook with them, make them very accessible and affordable. You know, we don't, we all know that, you know, eating ramen 24 uh, seven is not good for you. Now it might be tasty, you know, sometimes with a double ramen, double cheese, you know, I, I, I admit I ate a bunch of them, but you know, that's uh, it's important that, we have our indigenous foods as accessible as those and that we find ways to be able to get those into people's kitchens uh, without breaking the bank. Hmm. Okay. All right. That makes uh, perfect sense. So to find out more information about you, find out more information about your project, how do people get in contact with you? Yeah. Now, if they go online, like on Facebook, they can do a search for a decolonizing diet project and they'll come up with our uh, Facebook site. We have over 6,000 members of our Facebook community. And so that's a really good way to see what's happening out in the world there. Uh, There is a section, like I said, indigenous food sovereignty in the United States they can read about. There's also a chapter about the study itself. It's the outcomes of the the diet. And that's in a book called... uh, uh, indigenous uh, peculiarities and universalities. Strange little title, but um, and then there's the cookbook, the Decolonizing Diet Project cookbook itself, uh, which is available at the Northern Michigan University Bookstore 
or from Reinhardt and Associates, which is our personally owned business. And so that, uh, yeah, that's, that's the fun part, right? You get to take the cookbook and go out and see if you can find the, the ingredients and go home and make some of this food. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And we look forward to uh, trying out some of those foods. I know I'm already thinking, okay, where do I find this indigenous restaurant myself just to take a peek at uh, yeah. some of those flavors being mixed up? You know? well, hopefully we see a lot more restaurants and, and food aisles that are going to be indigenous in the future, man. Hey, yes, Miigwech, thank you for inviting me on your show. All right. Peace be. Thank you. Peace. <laughs>